Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a new podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. What do you have? I asked. She answered, Mandavi Cabernet Sauvignon. So I happily said yes. I tasted it. It was thin. It was watery. It was bland. It was Woodbridge by Robert Mondavi. I started to think, this is the kiss of death. That's Wine Spectator editor and publisher Marvin R. Shankin talking about the moment he knew the Robert Mondavi brand, the longtime standard bearer for the California wine industry, had, for lack of a better term, sold out, sacrificing a hard-earned quality reputation for the lure of mass production-driven profit. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator, and in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our November 30th, 2022 issue. More specifically, we're taking a deep dive into the Mondavi legacy. I would play in the winery among the tanks and the bottling line and conveyor belts and invite my friends over to ride the conveyor belts. I was as green as green can be. So when I got to Robert Mondavi, it was all brand new and a little bit intimidating, I might say. And we found out just years later that that was their first date. In 1966, there were just a few dozen wineries in Napa Valley. In terms of American drinking culture, wine was an afterthought, and the industry had remained largely stagnant since Prohibition. That was the year Robert Mondavi founded his winery. It changed everything. In the nearly six decades since, the number of Napa Valley wineries has grown from a few dozen to nearly 500. The valley changed as well, a lot. By the time Robert Mondavi passed in 2008, at age 94, he and his family didn't even own his namesake winery anymore. So why is Robert Mondavi still relevant today? Because no single person is more responsible for the modern-day success of what is now a $40 billion annual California wine industry. Robert Mondavi, or Bob as he was known to his friends, was the catalyst for America's wine revolution. His fingerprints are all over the valley, and his legacy, from his namesake estate and its winemaking alums to his children's own wineries is very much alive and well. In this episode of Straight Talk, with the help of Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News Mitch Frank, we're going to be hearing from a few of the people who worked with and loved Robert Mondavi, including Robert's son Tim Mondavi of Continuum Estate and Mondavi winemaking alum Paul Hobbs. Arlene and Michael Bernstein were the founders of the Mount Vitor Winery. They got their start as Mondavi Winery tour guides, They'll tell us about their special relationship with Bob and his second wife, Magritte. And I'll be chatting with Robert Hansen, the executive vice president for Constellation Brands, the drinks conglomerate that bought the winery in 2004 and is now attempting to change the winery's direction as we head into the 21st century. Joining me now is our own podcast director, Rob Taylor. Hey, James. Great to be back on the podcast. I might be even more excited about this episode than our first one. I think we've got a good one. The Mandavi saga has fascinated so many of us for so long. Call me crazy, but somehow I don't think this will be the last time Robert Mandavi shows up on the cover of Wine Spectator. Yeah, I'm not taking that bet. But there's an entire generation of younger wine lovers who don't know much of anything about the legend of Robert Mandavi winery. 
Take us back to the beginning. I'd be happy to. So buckle up. Near the end of 1965, Robert Mondavi's future looked bleak. He was 52 years old, and his own family was forcing him out of the winery that he'd spent two decades building into one of the best in Napa Valley. He had been general manager for his family's Charles Krug Winery, a historic cellar in St. Helena. Under the leadership of Robert, who oversaw sales and operations, and his younger brother Peter, who oversaw winemaking, Krug was recapturing its pre-prohibition glory. But the two brothers squabbled constantly. One day, Peter accused his older brother of misappropriating funds. Robert struck him. Okay, stop. You, you can't just skip over the slap or the punch, depending on who's telling the story. So, yes, Peter and Robert were always at odds over how their family's business was run. Basically, it was Go Big Bob versus Penny Pinching Peter. But you can't leave out the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, it was over Robert's wife's mink coat, which Robert had used Krug funds to pay for. His argument basically being that she needed to look the part on high-end sales calls. Peter wasn't buying it, literally. Their mother, Rosa, the winery's leading shareholder, ultimately dismissed her son, Robert, from the family business. Now, Robert was a smart, proud, and ambitious man, but he had no savings while he was living in a house on the winery property owned by the family that had rejected him. He had three kids and college tuition to pay. So every day, for weeks, that fall and winter, as 1965 turned to 1966, Robert walked out of his home on the crew grounds, past the winery where his brother worked, and the house where his mother lived, and he stepped into the vineyard. He carried a card table and a chair. Once he was out of sight, surrounded by vines, he would set up the table and sit, day after day. The leaves turned red and gold and then fell from the vines. Robert was considering his future. He considered Napa's future and the future of wine in America. Eventually, he decided to bet big on that future. Robert's youngest son, Tim, now the co-founder and wine grower at Continuum Estate, spoke with Mitch Frank about growing up at Krug and then joining his father's upstart winery in 1966. What has it been like, you know, after kind of growing up in your teen years, seeing your father start a winery? What has it been like for you, your own evolution, starting your own winery and kind of growing the vision from the ground up? Well, it's been, uh, it's quite something. I grew up as a boy on the Charles Krug property. Charles Krug Winery was my playground. I would play in the winery among the tanks and the bottling line and conveyor belts and invite my friends over to ride the conveyor belts, uh, which was quite a kick. But the business challenges of the day caused intensity among the family, and so my father was booted out. But I saw him begin again at Robert Mondavi, and so it was very exciting. I was able to put the first valves on the first tanks at Robert Mondavi at the age of 15 in 1966. And, you know, it was all hands on deck. And I loved being able to see that and see my father, his fastidious focus on detail, making sure that if we were to mow the lawn, we had to be in a collared shirt and pressed pants um, and always be welcoming to people. We had to build an industry. My father knew we had to build an industry, not just wine, but a recognition of uh, food and wine and culture in America. I think you were asking about the cultural elements. What was it that made my father what he was? And I think it was being a child of immigrants that did not speak English extremely well, 
but were incredibly intelligent. And they, my grandfather was known for his word. Uh, his word was gold. Everybody knows my father, but they don't know my grandfather. Uh, he was really the visionary that got us into wine, brought us to America, brought us to wine, brought us to California, and ultimately directed us to Napa Valley. It was that spirit of needing to be successful, that drive to prove oneself that was a fundamental element of these Italian immigrants that were looked down upon as Dagos at the time. We forget that, uh, and a lot of immigrants can relate to that today. But the immigrant story in America is what has made America great, and I think we have very short memories. While Tim was born into the Mondavi winery, it also attracted passionate and talented employees not just in the cellar, but in the hospitality business as well, including Robert's future second wife, Magritte, and Arlene and Michael Bernstein, who joined Mondavi as tour guides to help fund the development of their own vineyard and winery. They spoke with Mitch Frank as well. I am joined today with a couple of Napa Valley pioneers, Arlene and Michael Bernstein. They are the founders and former owners of Mount Wiener Winery. Welcome, Michael and Arlene. Thank you. Mount Wiener Winery, the land was a prune farm, correct? And mm-hmm. uh, you bought it in 1963, and, and the lodging apparently was a 19th century cabin? It was, uh, it was very old. <laughs> <laughs> we were not looking for, for vineyard land. That was the furthest thing. We were just looking for a place in the, in the country to go to on weekends. We uh, looked at the property, and of course... Everything was green from the rains, and it was it was just beautiful. And by this time, the price had been reduced from thirty thousand to twenty five thousand. So we're looking at fifteen acres of orchard, two houses, deer fence, for twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> that today that would buy you about a tenth of an acre of vineyard. But the Bernsteins did plant vines before they could get their fledgling winery up and running. However. They needed day jobs, and the new Robert Mondavi Winery was hiring a tour guide. The two of us showed up for the interview, and in those days, Bob and Margaret did the interviewing for tour guides. You were two people showing up for one job. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And so Robert looked at us, and he said, he said, I don't understand. There's two of you. There's only one job. And I said, well, that's right. And he said, well... How will we know who's coming to work? And I said, you won't, but one of us will show up. (laughs) And so they thought about it for a while, and they said, yeah, okay. Bob was very traditional, but then you looked around the place, and he had a female enologist. He had Margaret at the head of public relations, and I was the first female tour guide it was striking to me, you know, that he had even started a hospitality while he was at Krug and that this was something he always believed in. What was the hospitality operation like? Like, who were you seeing coming in? Who was interested in the winery? And what were the guests most fascinated by? Well, let's take uh, Marvin Shankin as an example. I took him on his first tour of the place and he stayed after and he was curious. You had people like him there. I remember a couple from West Virginia who wanted to start a vineyard. I mean, you had people who were really actively curious and interested in the process. 
So what was Bob like, especially in those days, as the man with the vision, but at the same time who had to make the place run? Bob would repeatedly say, my goal is to have Napa Valley wines on the table with the greatest wines of the world. And he wasn't talking about Robert Mondavi wines. He was talking about Napa Valley wines. That was his driving idea. And I think secondarily, uh, he wanted the winery to be a place for the arts. Well, that was Margaret. Well, that was Margaret, but Bob certainly went along with it. There was such chemistry between the two of them that you could actually feel the electricity in the air. And, of course, we were witness to that because we, we worked for her. And he'd come over and see how things were going, and, um, and you could just feel that they were both married to other people at the time. And so we went through that whole process with them of they're discovering each other and then the complications of, of uh, divorcing and then getting together. But uh, I don't know whether you want to tell the Chez Panisse story, but uh, yeah. it's, it's an interesting one. I'd come in one day a week and chop all the onions, carrots, and celery for the mirepoix for the week. And my pay was that Michael would come in and the two of us would be fed. So we got to eat at Chez Penny's once a week. They had an oval window in their front door, and up popped two faces, and it's Margaret and Bob. And then the, they pop down, and they, the door doesn't open. So, I, I mean, Michael didn't know what was going on. I just got up from the table and ran out the door and caught up with them and said, oh, you guys, we know. And that was the beginning of a personal relationship that they doubled date, they'd come up to our place, that kind of stuff. And we found out just years later that that was their first date. The Bernsteins really had a front row seat for Napa Valley's ascension as a beacon for food and wine culture. They've got a great story about hanging out with a young chef, Thomas Keller, that we'll have to squeeze into some podcast bonus content someday. So, James, speaking of food, Mandavi really felt like it was an integral part of wine appreciation. But in the 1950s and into the 60s, most of the wine made in California was fortified. And Mandavi was championing a shift in taste. The idea that wine's rightful place was at the dinner table table wines to be enjoyed with good food and thoughtful conversation. Mondavi didn't lead the charge single-handedly, but Napa was the most visible U.S. region for fine wine at the time, and Mondavi was its highest profile, most outspoken champion. He led a tireless effort to improve winemaking in California, to elevate American hospitality and fine dining, and more than anything, to prove that Napa wines, dry table wines, belonged on the same dining table as the finest wines of Europe. To that end, his biggest coup was arguably Opus One. Napa's original disruptor. It was a partnership between Mondavi and Baron Philippe de Rothschild of Bordeaux First Growth Mouton Rothschild, and it showed the world that Napa Valley Cabernet was now a contender. Tim Mondavi spoke with our Mitch Frank about that groundbreaking project. What was the Opus One collaboration like in the early days? To be honest, I was a little reticent initially. 
about the venture until I met Lucien Ciano, who was my counterpart at Mouton Rothschild, and I adored him. Once I met Lucien, all of my questions evaporated because he was so down-to-earth and so wonderful. But it was an inspiring time. I learned tremendously from Lucien Ciano, and ultimately we got along famously because ultimately it was the wines that spoke. It also blew the lid off the price for Napa wines at the time, debuting at $50 a bottle in 1980, more than triple the price of Napa's recently crowned Paris tasting winners, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and Chateau Montalena. Opus One paved the way for the Napa cult cabernet phenomenon of the 1990s. Very much so. I, I remember the reaction to that price when the wine came out, and my own father said, I would never pay that much for a <laughs> bottle of California wine. And of course, if you have bottles of the debut 79 Opus One today, they're worth several hundred dollars, and the wine is still drinking well. That Stag's Leap Cabernet, by the way, that won the Paris tasting was made by a Mondavi winery alum, Warren Winarski. The long list of Mondavi winemakers who've gone on to create prominent wineries of their own might be Robert's greatest living legacy. The names are a who's who of Napa wine, including Winarski, Mike Gergich, Zelma Long, Paul Hobbs, Helen Turley, Jean-Bierre Janssens, and of course Mondavi's son Tim, who also made the first Opus One wines with Mouton winemaker Lucien Sionneau. One of those esteemed alums is Paul Hobbs. He spoke with our Mitch Frank as well. What was your background in wine when you first got your position at Robert Mondavi Winery? I was as green as green can be. <laughs> Frankly, uh, uh, all I had was a little master's training at UC Davis, which had very little practical input. So I was mostly on the theory side. And uh, so when I got to Robert Mondavi, it was all brand new and a little bit intimidating, I might say. Mondavi was actually the very first winery that I toured, and Lily Thomas gave me a tour of the facilities. And I realized that she already knew more about wine than I did, and she was just a tour guide. So I figured, I have to work here. And then that same day, we went to several other wineries, but none of them had the kind of forward-thinking and that inquisitive, innovative kind of approach. It was more like, well, here's the recipe, here's how we make wine. And Mondavi was all shiny and new and you know, sort of like pushing the envelope. And so that, that really captured. So I, at, at some moment, probably that moment, I committed myself, I'm going to work at Robert Mondavi or I'm not going to work in the industry. Was it a pre, pretty free-flowing exchange of ideas? It was extremely, particularly, and I think this was a strength of Mr. Mondavi. He was the kind of individual that seemed to be apolitical and he just wanted a very interactive, dynamic, brutally honest kind of, if you had something interesting to say, he, he would pay attention to that. And I found him to be very refreshing in that regard. It was, it was just uh, fun to be in a tasting with him. He seemed to have clarity of where he wanted to go, and uh, he was motivational, inspirational. Despite all of Robert Mondavi's successes, however, there were also missteps including an IPO in 1993. The brand swelled through the 1990s, driven by the need to satisfy profit-minded investors. The decision to attach the Mondavi name to the mass-produced Woodbridge brand is the one that Wine Spectator editor and publisher Marvin R. Shankin doesn't believe the brand will ever overcome. It was 30 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was flying from San Francisco back home to New York 
Pretty sure it was first class. The attendant asked me if I would like a glass of wine. What do you have? I asked. She answered, Mandavi Cabernet Sauvignon. So I happily said yes. She brought me a glass. I tasted it. It was thin. It was watery. It was bland. I was shocked. I asked her for the bottle, because I couldn't believe it was Mondavi Cabernet. And sure enough, it was Woodbridge by Robert Mondavi. I started to think, this is the kiss of death. The great Robert Mondavi Cabernet, one of my favorite wines. Unfortunately, I was right, and the winery has suffered. Sad, but the truth. That's a very stark memory from 30 years ago when you look back on it today, is the damage that was done what you thought it would be? Is it worse? Can they fix it? There's no question the Mondavi brand has been damaged. The new owner, Constellation, is in the process of trying to fix it. I'm not sure they can. You're usually the optimist and I'm the pessimist, but we're reversing roles today. Mm. I'm optimistic that they can get it done, but it's not going to be easy. The world is different today. There are so many great Napa Cabernets out there. Mondavi was a leader 30, 40 years ago. Nobody misses it. There's so many other great wines out there. I'm not sure, and and I think the points you're making are very accurate, but as they always say, wine starts in the vineyard. They have California's greatest vineyard in Tokelon, and they have a collection of winemakers that are among the best. They need to get that front and center and remind people of what they can do as well as anybody with that vineyard. You're missing the point. I think the 2019, you gave the reserve 95 points and the regular 94 points. Mm-hmm. There are probably over 100 Napa Cabernets that are getting those kinds of scores. They're just a fish in a pond. Uh, they're not even a big fish in the pond. For them to regain the great consumer awareness they had 30 or 40 years ago, in my opinion, is virtually impossible. But... I'm wishing them well. The winery is special in the history of Napa Valley. And Robert Mondavi was a very special person and a good friend. We also asked Robert's son, Tim, about the brand's prospects. Talking about the future as well, Constellation told us they have big plans for Robert Mondavi Winery to try to kind of separate it from Woodbridge and private selection and to invest and improve the winemaking and re-elevate Robert Mondavi Winery back to the top level in Napa. Have you spoken with them about it and, and do you have any thoughts? Yes, I have lots of thoughts about what we should have done and didn't. And that's why Continuum is so great because we carry on with the best of what my family stood for, not everything. I was very proud of everything that we did. I was not proud of how we managed the identity of the various things that we did. But whatever we did from an operations perspective, we did the best way we possibly could. I felt that we needed to protect the integrity and clarity of purpose of Robert Mondavi Winery. We didn't do that. When my father began, there was absolutely laser focus for its day on what that meant. And over time, after we went public particularly, that clarity of focus was dissipated and shattered. I think what Constellation is trying to do now is what I would have done long ago. 
uh, whether they can put the genie back in the bottle is uh, an important question. In 2004, the then publicly traded Robert Mondavi Corp. was purchased by Constellation Brands for more than $1 billion. The purchase included the iconic mission-style winery in Oakville and, most importantly, more than 100 acres of Tokalon Vineyard. Okay, hang on now. In our first episode, you and the Cabernet Dream Team mentioned this Tokalon Vineyard quite a bit. Can we get an explainer or something? Sure. Should we page Dr. Vinny? Smart. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Oh my God, I'm here. Rob, what's the emergency? Hey, Dr. V. James keeps talking about Tokalon, like we should all know what that is. Can you help us out? You paged me about Tokalon. Well, you were completely right to do that. (laughs) So uh, Tokalon is a large historic vineyard in California's Napa Valley, and it's probably the most important vineyard in North America. Yeah, these days it's best known as the source of some of Napa's highest-priced Cabernet Sauvignons. But it's also known for a complicated and controversial ownership and trademark saga that continues to this day. Ooh, dish. Well, the vineyard was first planted in what is now Napa's Oakville Appalachian in the 1860s, and eventually it grew to several hundred acres. Along the way, it was named Tokalon, which is a Greek term meaning highest beauty. So the property was broken up and put together a few different times under different ownerships over the ensuing hundred years or so, uh, most notably by the late great Robert Mondavi, who also trademarked the name Tokalon. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting because usually people don't trademark the names of vineyards, but Mondavi never owned all of what was once the Tokalon Vineyard. Um, there are other grape growers, uh, the most important one, Andy Beckstoffer. He owns about 89 acres of it. And in the early 2000s, when Schrader Sellers made a wine from Beckstoffer's grapes and put Tokalon Vineyard on the label, Mondavi filed a lawsuit. They settled out of court with Mondavi keeping the trademark, but permitting wines from Beckstoffer's Vineyard to use the name. So, spoiler alert, <laughs> Constellation ended up buying Robert Mondavi Corporation in 2004. The Tokalon trademark and 110 acres of the vineyard came along with it, along with more lawsuits. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's because there are other grape growers like Beckstoffer who own vineyards that were once part of the original Tokalon property, but which can't use the trademarked name on the wines made from their vineyards. It really comes down to trademark law and whether or not you consider Tokalon to be a place or an intellectual property. In fact, Constellation, which refers to its Tokalon trademark as IP or intellectual property, recently created a new wine brand named Tokalon Vineyard Company. I know better than to stick my nose in other folks' dirty laundry, but I will say that if people have been fighting over this vineyard for as long as they have... There must be something pretty special about it. Yeah, without a doubt, wines from Tokalon Vineyard are among the most sought-after and highest-priced in California. In terms of sheer prestige, Tokalon is the closest thing Napa has to a Grand Cru Vineyard. Thanks, Doc. Of course, Rob. And for our listeners, if you've got a question about wine, the doctor is always in. You can check out my Dr. Vinny archives at winespectator.com, or you can email me your questions right here at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Okay, so Tokalon Vineyard, it's kind of a big deal. 
What's Constellation doing with it? Well, Constellation is a large company. That business was built on many low-end brands. They're now making a shift to the high-end with the addition of brands such as The Prisoner, Schrader Sellers, Lingua Franca, and others. They were even rumored to be in on the bidding for the recently sold Joseph Phelps Winery. In the mix, and perhaps the tip of the spear, is getting Robert Mondavi Winery back on a major quality upswing. And that's one of the things I asked Constellation's Robert Hansen about. Robert Hansen, welcome to Straight Talk. Thanks for having me. So you came from a jewelry and clothing background. You're a pretty high-powered executive. You've got a what I would call a good career in luxury goods, and now you step over to the wine industry. How do you take over the wine division at such a large company coming from clothing and jewelry? I'll never have the knowledge that you have or your colleagues have just given you've grown up in this industry and, um, you know, just the evidence of your experience. But I was on the board of Constellation Brands from 2013 through 2019. And I'm a Sonoma County boy. I was born and raised in Santa Rosa. I've grown up, grown up in the wine country. It's sort of coming full circle for me. What I would say, James, is uh, fundamentally, I came in to establish a bold and ambitious uh, vision for this business. Um, the business had atrophied for about a decade. You know, if I oversimplify it, it was a it was a bottom heavy price driven competitor focused on volumetrics. And what we've become is a bold, innovative, high end wine and spirits portfolio. We are focused on fewer, bigger, better brands that have sustaining power. And as I've gotten to know the Mandavi family, I've spent time with Tim and Michael and, and um, you know, and their sons recently um, to just get to know them a lot better. Much of what we're doing are things that I think the family felt should have been done in the first place. And in some of the moves, they themselves would say they, they, they regret. Robert Mandavi's name has become associated with Robert Mandavi Private Selection and Woodbridge. And given their price points and, frankly, the idea of Robert W. Private Selection is confusing for people because Private Selection sounds like an elevated mm-hmm. offering, and yet it's a you know currently a, a popular price point business. And I said, look, if I'm going to do this role, the one thing we have to be aligned on is we need to basically reposition Robert Madabi Winery once again to be a part of being the soul of Napa Valley Fine Wine. Wine Spectator's digital subscribers have access to more than 400,000 wine reviews, vintage charts for all major wine regions, the digital edition of our print magazine, wine and food pairing recipes, James Molesworth's web columns, our Insider Weekly newsletter, and much more. Sign up for your special introductory membership, just $4.95 per month, at winespectator.com slash subscribe. Getting back to my interview with Constellation's Executive Vice President of Wine, I asked Robert Hansen about that Tokalon trademark dispute. For most people, Tokalon is a place. For Constellation, Tokalon is a trademark. Um, Beckstoffer has the use of, na- of the name Tokalon under his Beckstoffer Tokalon thing. But there's a couple of small producers in there, the McDonald's and the Dieterts. Where do you see uh, this going? I know that there are hopeful aspirations from some of the parties involved here that they can all come together on this. Talk to us about the idea of trademark versus a sense of place for the Tokalon name. Yeah, you know, and look, look James, this is, uh, is an emotional issue that has been going on long before my tenure in this role, and I totally understand and respect where everyone's coming from. We were fortunate to acquire the rights to, you know, uh, the Tokalon and the Tokalon Vineyard trademarks when we acquired Robert Mandavi Winery in 2004. We are really committed to maintaining and sharing the rich history and the incredible quality of the Tokalon Vineyard. Um, 
the, the brands and the products that come off of that vineyard with some of the best winemakers in the world, Thomas Rivers Brown, Andy Erickson, John Biev Jansen, now Sally Johnson, Robert Madabi Winery, Schrader, Toklam Vineyard Company. The, the thing that I would say, though, is that is our position about the IP. We live and work in a community. I believe that it's important, despite our different views on whether Tokelon is a place or an IP, which we believe it's it's the top five it's one of the top five vineyards in the world. You can't deny that it is a place, but we own the IP. The question becomes: Is how can we work as a community to get to a place that hopefully um, everyone will, even if we have disagreements, can uh, come together and you know keep our eyes turned towards the future? And that's really what I'm focused on. In the wine industry, nothing comes quickly. They say it takes 10 years to learn a vineyard and another 10 to learn the wine. It's been 18 years now since Constellation purchased Robert Mondavi Winery. By now, the vineyard is well known, and replanted vineyard parcels in Tokelon are coming back online. The wines are starting to take on new life. The winery's 2018 and 2019 Cabernet lineups are the best that I've tasted in some time. Nothing in the wine industry comes easily either especially when it comes to transitioning a family-owned winery from one generation to the next or to new owners, corporate or otherwise. Change is inevitable, and there are dips and lulls along the way. No winery carries as much legacy, as much cultural import to American wine as Robert Mondavi Winery. I, for one, am optimistic for its future. It played a role in bringing me to wine, and I could see the name with a little bit of that throwback cachet helping to bring a new generation to wine, if if the wines are great. Sadly, it's once again time for us to sign off. You can read much, much more about the Mandavi legacy in Wine Spectator's November 30, 2022 issue of Wine Spectator and at winespectator.com. You can email us with your questions and comments at straighttalk at winespectator.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. James, do you want to let the Straight Talk fans know what's coming up next? Absolutely. It's time for our little Easter egg drop. That's a sneak peek at what's not only coming up in the next issue and episode, but also a Straight Talk exclusive on an exciting yet-to-be-published wine review. Now, our next issue is the December 15th issue, and it's time for Bubbles, baby. And by bubbles, I mean champagne. Yeah, of course. The end of your champagne rush. I know what a sparkling connoisseur you are. Are you going to leave any for the rest of the revelers this year? Hey, Rob, that's a little blow. You know, champagne shortages have been a threat since the start of the pandemic. It's not just me. Act of God, I get it. As for Straight Talk Episode 3, we're going to tackle that subject, though, and more. Our colleague and lead taster for champagne, Allison Napnius, is going to join us in the studio, and she'll be bringing along some big-time bubbly stars, including Louis Roderer winemaker Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon. She's also reviewed more than 200 new champagnes for our annual report. And I know you're going to give us a hot tip. I am. If you really want a classy bottle of vintage champagne this holiday season, track down the Laurent Perrier Brut Champagne 2012. It earned 93 points from Allison, and at 95 bucks, it's pretty well-priced for a 10-year-old vintage champagne from the Grand Mark. And you can say, you heard it on Straight Talk first. A little inside info on Straight Talk. I like it. In fact, here's one more bonus PSA for all of you. Stop pouring your champagne into flutes. You sound pretty passionate about that. You know, champagnes are really incredibly complex wines. They deserve to be served in a glass that shows off every facet of their quality. You wouldn't cook a filet mignon in the microwave. Don't serve champagne in a flute. Understood. While you sign off, I'm going to go hide all the flutes. Until next time, thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.